Hi, I am Nicole J. Georges. I am a queer, feminist, vegan cartoonist, teacher, and advice columnist living in Portland, Oregon, with my half-blind chihuahua, Ponyo Georges. <coughs> Welcome to our podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the Today on Sagittarian Matters, I interviewed Michelle T. at my friend Carson's farm. Later, we get tour stories with Beth Ditto. Michelle T. is an icon. She started Sister Spit, the queer literary tour that toured through the 90s and into today. She had a nonprofit called Radar Productions, and she is best known as a writer and a memoirist. She did a really great lesbian book called Valencia about living in San Francisco in the early 90s. Um, the Chelsea Whistle, which I really liked, and Rent Girl, which was a graphic novel-style book about being a sex worker. Michelle came to visit me when I was staying at a farm in Tualatin. I was house-sitting for Carson Ellis, an illustrator, and Michelle stopped by to get interviewed. I need to tell you my travel, my travel tip, which you may already know, but... Wherever I am, that's my new life. I don't think of what's ahead or what's behind me. I just think of now. So, like, if I'm on a plane, mm-hmm. that's my new place. That's where I live. That's so great. That's, like, really Buddhist. That's, like, very being in the Thank moment. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I've heard that since I picked it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I picked up that philosophy from someone that was in a hardcore band in the 90s who toured a lot. Uh-huh. So it would make sense that it was Buddhist because there was some kind of, like, remember there's, like, a Hare Krishna Hardcore overlap, so maybe there was like a Buddhist thing, but um, and like maybe Ian MacKay was seems kind of Buddhist. Oh my god! Um, but so you know, somebody said to me before, like, well, what about when there's turbulence? Your life must really suck. And I was like, well, yeah, life really sucks then, because that's it. Yeah, that's all I have is that moment, and it's turbulence. So. Yeah, but you know, I had a really Buddhist moment on a plane during extreme turbulence, and it was when I was very immersed in Buddhism at that time. I had been taking like a class and I was like meditating regularly at the Zen center in San Francisco. And I just sort of like realized that in that moment, nothing was happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. So all of my feelings were about what was, what did the turbulence mean? What was about to happen? Mm-hmm. But in that extreme present moment, nothing was happening. I just was in the shaking tra- plane yeah. and like, and I realized that even if the plane was going down, I could maintain that stance to the moment of my death. Yeah. And just be wow. like, I'm not dead right now. I'm just in a plane that's falling. Yeah. I'm not, you know, yeah. I don't know. Like it really blew my mind. It was really an awesome moment. Yeah. I love it. It was that. a really cool moment. It's, it's a hard place to be in all the time. I mean, I think that's why people, you know, strive and struggle to have like actual spiritual practices because yeah. it's not, it doesn't come naturally to us to think like that. But yeah, it was cool. Um, I have the almost opposite Zen thing where I'm just like, all right, I'm going to die. I'm just coming to terms with the fact that I'm going to die. All right. It's been a good life. Here we go. <laughs> during turbulence yeah, on a during plane. Term, like if it's really scary, I'm just like, all right, life's been fine. You know, I hope I hope to get hit in the head with some luggage, some flying luggage, so I get knocked out. And that's that sounds good. That doesn't sound bad either. Unless are you like in the grips of total terror and panic as you're having those thoughts? Not total terror and panic. I I rarely feel total terror and panic. I should say that 
I am staying at a farm and I was staying by myself with some windows open that look onto a field full of horses and llamas and goats. And one night, well, two nights ago, I heard what sounded like a tiny human scream, <laughs> which I since have learned is a rabbit getting eaten by an owl. Aww. Like this little like, ah! Oh, God. So I'm like laying in bed by myself and I just hear this like, ah! Our producer did not like that. She did not. Producer Ponyo did not. (laughs) But the other night I was here and I heard this scream and I Googled it and it was... (laughs) What did you Google exactly? Well, okay, so I know there's llamas out there and the llamas are my jurisdiction. I am here to take care of them because during the day they take care of me by letting me be near them. (laughs) So I hear this sound and I was like, oh no, is that the llama screaming? So I Googled llama scream and I watched a YouTube video of a llama screaming and I was like, I believe that is what I heard. Oh and God. so now I'm just going to wait. And I waited and I heard it again. And I was like, <gasps> this is it. The rubber hits the road. Like, this is time for the house sitter to really show what she's got. So I was like looking around the house. I couldn't find a flashlight. I took my iPhone flashlight app out <laughs> into like the middle of this field in the middle of the night, pitch black, with my dog who's blind. It was blind at night, barking and running into the distance at nothing. <laughs> So if it was like a coyote, Ponyo's gone. Yeah, like, it Ponyo's, should be a tasty morsel. Ponyo's, Our producers are not that big. The producer Ponyo is eight pounds. She is half blind now. She's blind in the dark. She's running at nothing, oh trying to be protective, but it's actually frightening. I'm like walking there wearing my hot pants, holding my iPhone as a flashlight. Did you sleep in hot pants or did you put the hot pants on? I put them on. And uh, holding a broom. I don't know what I was hoping to do with, like, if it was coyotes or something. Just, like, going to sweep them away. Beating it with the broom. <laughs> um, it was nothing. I don't know what it was. It t- the neighbor told me it was horses in heat when I talked to her the next day. Oh, really? But me in the middle of the field, I'm walking out there. I'm like, hello. And then I just see, you know, the sheep is like, hey, is everything okay? Like, the sheep gets up out of bed and is like, are you all right? Like, what's going on? And the goats are like, what's going on? Everyone, I wake everyone up, basically. And then they didn't want to take care of you. They're like, something's wrong with the human. <laughs> yeah. The llama, like, hoists himself up out of his sleeping pose and is like, why, why are you out here? And I'm like, maybe the llama was having a bad dream. The llama's like, ah! Just, <laughs> Google llama noises. They're crazy. Wow. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about, which has nothing to do with that, is day jobs. Day jobs. Um, I... In success. I was just at a thing, um, it was a literary event, where I think a lot of people are invested in the idea of literary success being, someone else published you, so you are successful. Um, So that's one measure of success. Another thing is people from the outside see that you've been published, and they imagine that that's your living. Right. And so I want to kind of knock down both of those things. Like, I have been writing zines and publishing things for so long, and I've been published by so many different people Mm -hmm. that I understand that being published is not the end-all be-all of the world because it's so anticlimactic, a person could not even believe how anticlimactic it is. Like how little your life changes as a result. Yeah, how someone's like, today's your pub date. Congratulations, your book's out. And then that's it. Yeah. I mean, like, maybe you have some interviews you have to do or you have, like, some stuff to do, but... You, there's not a parade in your honor. It's not like you come out and like TMZ is like, oh my god, you wrote a book. No one's also, no one's ever written a book before. <laughs> your life doesn't change that. I mean, everything is cumulative. Everything is cumulative. So all the small totally. things you do lead, can lead up to a big thing that does feel bigger. Yeah, in like ten years. But in the meantime, like the, the idea of like overnight success, like YouTube celebrity kind of success, is not sustainable and is not going to last you a lifetime. And it doesn't, and I don't even think it's something that ever happens in the in literary world. There are no literary overnight successes, are there? Uh, I mean, 
not real. It's like there's this, well, there's this, I'm, I'm really, I'm really getting into the weeds with this. But so I teach a lot of MFA programs and there's students, there are students who I try to tell them like, you know, you're going to do this comic for your thesis. This is not the end. This is not the last thing you're ever going to write. Right. So if you have to conform to my standards for this writing assignment or this thing, I'm not saying you can't write your life story later, but they all want like to write one good thing and have it be discovered and have it be published and then be like a super celebrity, but without (laughs) putting in the work. Like I'm like, what you don't see, like if you see somebody put out a book that's really big that you see somewhere, it's because they've been writing for years and years and years. Right. Things you haven't seen. Do you think this is a product of people growing up in like reality TV sort of land where people are just become famous for nothing? Well, I don't and know. And so there's this like idea that like fame is is the goal instead of like work being the goal. Like instead of like I want to be a writer. And write books and be like, live a writer's life and be like, take my place in this amazing pantheon of, you know, like, yeah. just like, it's how great that you're a writer. It's like, writing is such an amazing thing and you get to be a part of it. But instead, just be this, I want to be famous thing. Like. Well, I'm inherently lazy <laughs> on some level. So I at least thought um, that people could do one really good thing and then live off of that. Yeah. And so, but I thought that. In some t- industries you can, just probably not this one. Well, all right, this this got shattered for me when I was dating somebody who was playing music with Courtney Love, <laughs> and so I would go to L.A., and I was like, babe, pig in the city, but I realized <laughs> that Courtney Love was still having to hustle and work. I mean, truly, she spent a lot of her money on drugs. I'm like, but- <laughs> I think there's other, other circumstances going on there. She probably could be living a really great, uh, carefree, humble life. But let's say she she got rid of her money, who knows how, but she was still having to work and struggle. Right. And the people playing music with her had made things that I thought were really good, like albums that I listened to yeah. over and over. So I was like, this album's so great. Of course they must be taken care of. Like, cause I couldn't see that people just keep working and that's the goal. I mean, the idea is this is your job, right? I yeah. think the goal is to have this be, I, I don't know. I feel like the goal is to be a working writer, a working musician. The yeah. goal isn't to like win the lottery and then sit on your ass for the rest of your life. You know, <laughs> the, the goal is to like, be able to create some things that you can stand behind and that people out in the world enjoy. And then that enables you to then create your next thing that people in the world enjoy. It's like, it's just to be kind of part of the game, not to somehow like, I don't know. It's weird. It's like, it's like not wanting to be a writer. It's like, you want something else actually. Yeah. (laughs) You want to win the lottery, which I do too. I understand. Just buy a lottery ticket. Yeah. Just buy a lottery ticket. Well, I think that like even students I have don't understand that like, Chris Ware, who makes books that make a lot of money, mm-hmm. he still does illustrations for The New Yorker. Yeah. I'm sure that's prestigious, but it's also because it gives you a paycheck. Oh, yeah. Like Dan Klaus, who to me is like one of the most famous cartoonists, who should, I think, be sitting in luxury just getting royalty checks for uh-huh. whatever, and like fan letters and like pairs of horn-rimmed glasses from girls, or like in a package <laughs> of their underwear or something. Like he still has to do illustration work. Like, yeah. Adrian Tomine, who did Optic Nerves, still does illustration work. And they're not doing that just for fun. No. Like, these incredible artists that created the graphic novel canon of, like, this time yeah. are still working. Still working. That's just what they're working on. And writers like. write till they die. Yeah. Right? I mean, look at Joyce Carol Oates. But it's joyful. Ideally, that's, yeah. I yeah. guess that's a difference. Yeah. Well, I think that's what... There's, like, this James Baldwin quote... I'm actually quoting somebody who quoted James Baldwin, so I can't verify 100% that (laughs) it's James Baldwin. Let's dilute (laughs) this. You tell Ponyo and then Ponyo will tell me. 
in the great telephone game, <laughs> it supposedly originated with James Baldwin, just like, do you want to write or do you want to be famous? Mm-hmm. And this is like a really great question. It's like, yeah. what do you want to do with your life, you know? And um, if you want to be famous, then you should like go and shoot the president or something. I don't know. It's like a million ways you can. <laughs> Michelle T is not advocating. <laughs> no, piece. don't really shoot the president, please. Not this one, anyway. Wait till the after the next election, then maybe you might want to shoot the president. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a million dumb ways to get famous. Like, do you want to be an artist? That's totally has nothing to do with being famous. Yeah, there's the practice can be the reward. Mm-hmm. Not to be a weirdo, but like, so people like this that have a lot of anxiety about their writing. Yeah, like probably like, what are people going to think of it? Are people going to like it? Are people going to read it? It's like we well, have to get this story out of you one way or the other. Yeah. So just do it, and maybe you'll find your audience, and that's the goal. Yeah. And maybe you'll find your audience because you paid Kinko's, or maybe you'll find your audience because someone else paid Kinko's for you. Right. Totally. And it's just... Totally. You connecting with readers, it doesn't make a difference either way. I remember the first time I read a poem out loud, I was, of course, nervous, and I didn't necessarily believe that the poem was fantastic, but I thought maybe it was okay, and I kind of liked it. And I remember thinking, and this is exactly... I was like... People like really bad pop music that I don't like. So somebody will like this. I just was like, there's an audience for everything. Like somebody will like this and I'm going to read this poem for whoever likes it. I'm not reading it for the people who don't like it and reading it for the people who do like it. And I just felt like there's an audience for everything. I don't need to be like Michael Jackson over here. I can just read my poem to like the one lesbian with a shaved head sitting in the back of the room who came up to me afterwards and was like, I really liked your poem. And See? I was like, awesome. Yeah. Probably nobody else in the bar liked it, but she liked it. That's and your so person. That was great. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I really believe in that, but it's something I, and I've said it a million times. So at some point I just feel like, Oh, I don't need to say that anymore because people know, but then I keep meeting young aspiring writers, uh-huh. which also is whatever. Uh, I have something to say about that. I have something to say about a lot You of made things. air quotes around aspiring. aspiring. Like, you just are a writer. Like yeah. You don't need to have something happen to you to no, get to say you're a writer. There's not a moment. There's not. And I've, I think I've said this a billion times, but I'll say it again because this is the new podcast, so I shouldn't even say that because this is all new information to yeah. whoever's listening yeah, to it. Yeah. But I, I actually heard this guy, I believe, on Julie Clouster's podcast. This man, I believe his name was Kermit. I can't remember his last name, but I remember his first, of course. But he said, you know, like, if you're a writer... Like, here's a great way. Here's a great test. If you're a writer or an artist, not an aspiring writer or artist. If you just are a writer or an artist, if someone wrote, gave you a blank check, you could write in the amount for however much you want. But as soon as you sign it, you could never write another word down again. Would you do it? And no. Wow. Like if you're an artist and somebody gave you this check for a quadrillion dollars, but as soon as you signed it, you could never draw another picture for the rest of your life. No way. I couldn't do it. I would go crazy. I think I could do it. You think you could do it? You I could think never I could do write it. again? I've become You could so... never tell a story or anything. You could never tell a story? Like even well, you... in conversation with Maybe you? Maybe like, a conversation. Hey, Nicole, crazy thing happened to me. You... Yeah, but you couldn't like go on the moth or anything. I couldn't. Go... You could... That couldn't be your new medium. I couldn't... <laughs> so I couldn't, be... I couldn't be public in my storytelling ever again. No. I would just have to be a normal person in like, the Like your friends might have to stop taking your calls because you would call them every day and be like, and then the mermaid said... You know something? What? I really think at this... I'm 44 years old. I've written a bunch. If I was given a quadrillion dollars, yeah. I would do it. I would do it. I could, <laughs> I, could, I could walk away now and then just spend the rest of my life like hanging out with my baby and like traveling and not worrying about money anymore. What if he grew up? Well, he'll grow up. He and will leave grow you. Up. 
well, he will grow up and leave me. But then what are you going to do? I'll have my money still, and I'll have my <laughs> wife, and we'll just have, like, we'll travel around and stuff. And like, Well, then you're not a writer. To, I guess I'm not. I mean, by that, by that test, I'm not. I'm not Don't worry. Writer. She's still a writer. <laughs> I think that if I was asked that at a different point in my life, I would say I would have been offended at the question in the, to begin with. But I think this is after, you know, 20-odd years of hustling for money yeah. that, that I'm ready to... If somebody told me I will pay you a quadrillion million dollars to, to shut up, I would be like, okay, cool. You got it. I, I feel like I got, I got my work out there. You would just uh, spin a spin a yarn for Dashiell every day. Totally, I'd like tell stories to the baby. Well, Even the when baby. he grows up, I'll be like, well, it's your mother. So anyway, there was this mermaid. He'd be like, okay, ma. He'd be like, I got I gotta go. <laughs> I gotta go. There's a um, insane clown posse concert. I gotta go. To. <laughs> How dare you! <laughs> My child does not go to the insane clown posse concert. That's his way of rebelling as he becomes a juggalo. <laughs> I have like really cool, culturally relevant oh lesbian moms, God. and I chose <laughs> to become a juggalo. Then you're just like, you know, it's nature, it's not nurture. I mean, he just came out of the womb a juggalo. There was nothing I could do about it. As soon as he could we talk, his first word was green dreadlocks. <laughs> oh my God. Green mini dreads. No, stop it. <laughs> Our producer doesn't like the direction this is going. <laughs> um, I think that's it. Okay. Do you have any last minute advice for people about money or parenting? Oh, geez. Um, about money, I think that if you have like money issues and money problems and class issues and class problems, try not to demonize money as you work it out. You know? It's like real easy, I think, when you're like up against a system to just be like, I'm just getting, I'm just throwing it all out. It's all terrible. Money's terrible. And I just feel like you're going to probably have to undo that at some point. You're going to just figure out another way to, to deal with your ish. Um, and for parenting, God, I don't even know. Um, I mean, I don't know if I'm doing anything right. I let my baby sleep in my bed with me every single night. You shake him and wake I don't shake him awake. He shakes me awake. He wakes up and then punches me in the face with his binky like right in the mouth. It's really intense. Then he flops his giant baby skull down on my nose and like almost breaks my nose. But, um, but I love sleeping with him. And he just, it's like he won't sleep in his crib. And I feel like when I say that, what the reaction I expect from people is like, what do you mean he won't sleep in his crib? Like, he's the baby, you're the parent, yeah. you make him sleep in the crib. Yeah. But I don't, it just seems terrible to make him sleep in the crib if he hates it, you know? And, and it feels really sweet to sleep with him. And we might try to do something about it. Like, we have a lot of changes on the horizon. We're on this, like, big trip right now. And then we're going to be relocating. And it just seems like while we're in all this transition, kind of kicking him out of the bed seems like a bad idea. Weird. Like, I just feel like, how will he not feel like it's somehow a punishment of sorts yeah. that he's being kind of cast out. It's like yeah. really sad, you know? So we'll wait until maybe he's a little older and we're in our new place. Um, then you could like get a lid for it, for the crib. A crib lid. And lock it. <laughs> we'll put him in a trunk. Yeah. Oh, he's so cute. But um, my mother says, oh, that's not good for your love life. Oh. I was like, well, yeah, I guess not. But, you know... Little, People, little about the first year of having a child is good for your love life. Yeah, I'm so sure. it just seems like, yeah. you know. People have co-slept and had sex before mm -hmm. in their lives. You just have to be creative. It's just like you're a teenager again. Yeah. It's like you're sneaking around, but now instead of sneaking around people's parents, you're sneaking around on your child. On your own baby. On your very own baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, will you tell people your writing practice now that you have a baby? 
I feel like people or people are like, maybe I'll just uh, get 15 minutes of writing in here or there or whatever. Or some people wake up at like five in the morning and crank out a page. The baby wakes up at five in the morning. So that doesn't even necessarily help. Well, I guess that's not true. My baby wakes up at like six or seven. So I could get up at five. That just seems impossible though. I'm so sleep deprived and the first year of parenting, you're so sleep deprived that I just feel like at any, I I don't, I don't have that kind of stamina where I can be like, you're going to get up an hour early and write. I can, however, stay up later and write because I'm already awake. So you're not in that state of like, oh my God, I'm sleeping. I can't believe it. Like there's nothing that can pull me out of that, out of sleep except the baby. Me neither. But, um, for a while I was staying up at night. So after my, um, baby and my wife went to bed, I would stay up and work and I did work that way. I mean, I... I wrote a screen a whole screenplay like that, working at night, and I, a bunch of work proposals and just various this and that. But it did feel unsustainable, um, and so I ended up getting help on Thursdays and Fridays. And so those are my writing days now. I have five hours on Thursday, five hours on Friday. You have somebody watch the baby. Yes. Does time have a new meaning? Where now, when you sit down to do those five hours, you were like, bam. Yeah, it's stressful. You're like, oh my god. You know, it's so much so that I'm just like. Do I want to just work at home because then I'm not wasting like 20 minutes getting to a cafe? Like I want that 20 minutes. Yeah. But, some, but sometimes I just really want to get out of the house because yeah. I'm in the house all the time. So yeah, it is. And at the same time, it's like you you can't put so much pressure on yourself. Like you can only accomplish what you can accomplish. Like the other day, I spent all of my hours editing something to become a book, and then realized at the end of my hours, it's not a book. Like. It's, I'm, I was trying to take a blog and kind of turn it into a book. Yeah. And I'm like, no, actually, it was just a blog. Its moment is done. I'm not, I can't rework this material into a book. Um, and then I just felt like, oh, my God, I just, like, paid somebody an hourly rate for me to edit something that I'm never going to It just felt yeah. like I just threw money into the wind. But, like, the creative process is just filled with so many false starts and yeah. things like that. So you can't think of it like that but it's hard not to yeah when you're paying for it and when it's scarce yeah yeah but now my wife is she quit her job so she's gonna stay home with the baby and i'm gonna be able to work full-time so too cool very cool hopefully we can make it work but i'm I'm really excited about it until such a time when someone gives you a check for a quadrillion dollars until that happens if anyone wants me to shut up that badly and has access to a quadrillion dollars Shut up. Who would ever want to know? You better <laughs> shut up. diabolical quadrillionaire. A diabolical quadrillionaire <laughs> is giving out grants for artists whose work they don't like to yeah. stop making art. God, can you imagine? Stop giving women a voice, Michelle. <laughs> Just be quiet for a second. But that would be so great. And then I could, like, could I do other things? Like, could I take that quadrillion dollars and publish work that I liked? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. Because that would be, I would feel like, I guess I feel like at this point there's lots of things that I could pursue that would feel meaningful to me beyond writing. And if I had a situation like that where I would be fully funded for the rest of my life and my family and my child would be fully funded for the rest of their lives, then it would be, I would take it as an opportunity to pursue another interest that was not writing. I would. I, I contain multitudes, Nicole. I would, I would, I would not mind uh, doing a little bit of like hanging out, teaching comics. And like I got out of draw for that, huh? Never mind. I was going to say, I go. <laughs> The, the, I heard this guy in the moth talk about volunteering at like an AIDS orphanage in Africa. Oh my god! And like he just did it, and I was like, "Why don't I just Google that place and just go there? Like, right? What else am I doing?" Yeah, well, really, you're working on your career, and you're an independent career, like, artist, and it's like if you're not working on your career twenty four seven, where does your career go? That's what it feels true. like when you're but, uh, an independent artist. But if I have a quadrillion dollars, then you could do things like that. That's I don't. What I'm saying I don't need to stay here and like write a grant to draw comics and help other people draw comics. I could be like. 
this little, this like two year old that has AIDS mm-hmm. is drawing Garfield. So exactly, like there's just other things that could bring meaning into your life besides writing. Yeah. I mean, just think of like athletes who like lose their leg or something. But you know what's then, hard you know? is I really want to read a memoir about that. So like me going and doing yeah. some outreach work, I want to then write about it and spread the word so more people will go do outreach work. Yeah. So it's, that's the, can't, can't do that's it. the bind I'm in. So the quadrillionaire is like, I want you to go see the most incredible and like tragic life changing things of your life, but you can never tell anyone in a written form about it. That seems hard for me. Well, that's because you are wired in that way. Where like you can't like do art anymore. Like you can't didn't make art about it. It's like it didn't happen. And I, and it's like I would die. It would just fester inside of me. I would just die. Yeah, it would be hard. Also, it would I have be a really terrible hard. memory. So someone would be like, "Remember that beautiful thing?" And I'd be like, "Barely. I barely." Can you keep a diary under this? You can never thing? write another word. No, you can't keep a diary. Of course not. You can't draw. You can't. Well, I don't know. There's other things. I mean, like, what would you do if? Okay, say you did do this. Say you, say you were forced to. Say the diabolical quadrillionaire actually had like evil supernatural powers and also just like prevented you from ever so, so you had to take this yeah what would you do what would i do yeah what would you do would you, i mean you i don't have unlimited funds but you just can't write or make art like i can't so that means i can't sing does that mean that yeah that's art so you can't make any art whatsoever yeah but you can say anything is art like can i cook a meal yeah you can cook you can't tell you can't write down your recipes so Wait. <laughs> <laughs> okay that's fine can i like can i like create an apiary and start like beekeeping i guess so Okay, well, all right, this is something interesting. <laughs> so, but I can't just be what, in a band. You can't be in a band. Okay. So I can't sing about it. I can't be like, all the inoculations I had to get <laughs> for this trip. Okay, well, like, hmm. I saw a giraffe running down the street. Can't do that. Okay, so you can't sing about it. But, like, so I probably couldn't make a web series with my dog in it. Okay. So all these jokes, I couldn't be a comedian. You couldn't... God, when you really think about it, it makes it just feel like everything is art. But, but I guess we're talking about being creative. It's like you can't do anything. So the diabolical person's making it so you can't ever be creative ever. Maybe I have to like follow a recipe if I make food. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I haven't thought that far in advance to be like, can you make... You uh, have to t- contact the person who like... Who, who said this? Who asked this, this question? This guy, Kermit something, who Kermit. is a writer, who's like a music writer. Kermit, will you let us know, like, can we, can we unpack this question? We need to know the finer details of it. Like, well, now I feel like you're making it a would you rather, you know? It's like, you're... Yeah. <laughs> would you rather never be able to eat salt again or never yeah. be able to eat pepper again? Yeah. Would you rather never be able to make art again but have a quadrillion dollars? I'm going to make this podcast... Can I travel? The, I could travel the world. Like, what's better than that? In a way, I feel like I'm making art so that I can travel the world. I like traveling the world. Yeah. Like, I... I really didn't mind going to an animal sanctuary in Australia and like holding a kangaroo's hand. Oh my god, you held its hand? Yeah. I tried, I, dear god, Michelle, I tried so hard to find something in my purse I could use as a ring so I could do one of those pictures that said, she said yes. <laughs> because it was letting me like fuck with its hands because it was like drowsy on like kibble or whatever I was feeding it. Roofies. Yeah, like kangaroo roofies. <laughs> Uh, no big deal. Uh, <laughs> really happened in Australia, Nicole. <laughs> my ether rag in my pocket on the wombat. I'm like, give me a kiss, just one kiss. Uh, but I, so I put like a keychain ring around its finger. Oh my god! To be like, she said yes. That's hilarious. Thank you. I saw Joey in a pouch when I was in Australia. Oh my god, um, that's so cute. And I, his foot was sticking out of the pouch, oh and god. I could have touched it, but I thought that was crossing some weird anti-feminist line. 
it's nice. Whereas, like, she's not she's not consenting to me reaching in her pouch right now. Yeah. It was like you were reaching up into her vagina and, and touching something in her uterus. Right? Kind Just because I saw it and I wanted to. Oh, I saw it and I resist. wanted to. When I was pregnant, I really felt like a kangaroo. You did? Kind of. I was like, oh, it's just like... He's your Joey. Yeah. It's just like, I can't get to him, but he's just like in there. Yeah. You know, can't go, can get to get to them, but yeah. Um, well, Michelle, thank you for being on my podcast. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, it's been lovely to be here. It's lovely to... Uh, thank you for working with my producer. I know she's been challenging. And uh, It's not every day the producer sits on your lap and licks your face and it's somehow not sexual harassment. <laughs> well, thank you for... Uh, not pushing her away. <laughs> she's, she's very well-meaning. That's it. Cheers. Cheers, queers. Beth Ditto and I are a power couple. A non-romantic power couple. We are... She is one of my best friends. We are in something called Bitch Crew which has matching tattoos, which is a four-person crew. Beth and I became friends in the early 2000s. We met at Homo Agogo in Olympia. She's since moved to Portland, and we have been friends ever since. What's the worst place you've ever woken up? On tour. Oh my god. Probably, I definitely stayed at some squats in Europe that I was like, I don't. Oh, you know what? The very first time we were on a tour bus, true story. First place ever woke up. And it was this janky tour bus that you rented by like, it was seriously like 300 euros a month or something, which is insanely cheap, but it was not, that's not an exaggeration. And then, um, so I woke up and the mattress was really thick, and of course you're sleeping in a coffin, so the thinner your mattress, the the more likely you'll be able to sleep in there. So I was investigating to see if I could, like, if maybe it was doubled over or yeah. I could, like, fold it out. So I took the sheet off. Yeah. And on this, like, water foam, it was, like, a bloodbath. Like, someone, I was, like, I was pretty sure that it was not a period. Oh. Or a nosebleed. Like, it was literally saturated in blood, drop blood. <laughs> like, so, the size of a body. So what did you do? Um, and what kind of band... I switched. I think I switched. It was used to be, and... You gave that to Nathan? No, I don't, we didn't take up all the things, all the bunks. So then Nathan, yeah, no. I'm sure Nathan's woke up in some rough places. But I got, like, I probably... No, I'm sure I just, maybe I even had to sleep on it. I don't remember. But on that same trip, there was no air conditioning, so, and the windows didn't open, so we were just stuck in this coffin, this no circulation... I mean, probably what happened is someone died and just bled and like what in that from suffocation. Probably what happened is somebody probably what happened is somebody died from what is it called when you're heat exposure, and then they like heat stroke, and then their body rotted into the mattress, and that's probably what their happened. bandmates didn't. It was the like the basis. Yeah, I do. You know, that picture is a pirate, like the full blown like pirates. Like I'm like this must have been what I was like to be a pirate. Like when you're like, oh, I guess there's a few rats. I'll try to eat that later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's only rum to drink. Do you remember Harem Scarum, the crusty, yeah. crusty band? Of course. Little Diane from Harem Scarum told me before they slept at a squat, and they went to bed and they felt all these lumps, and they were like, whatever. <gasps> and when they woke up, they saw they were surrounded by dog turds, by dried dog turds. 
Like they were like, oh, what's on my under my back? Like under my sleeping bag. Like they felt like they had put their their tent down on some rocks, yeah, like a gravel pit. Yeah, and actually, it was just the whole the morning, the whole. So we floor. put our red tent down on a quarry, and then we woke up and the quarry was made of turds. Last, last question: What is the fanciest place you ever woke up? Oh, you know what? I've been very lucky to stay in a lot of fancy places. I'll tell you what: one time we got to fly first class on Singapore Airlines, mm. and mm. you can get. A double bed on first class in Singapore Airlines. That's crazy. No one would share it with me, though. You had to have two people in the middle, and I was like, come on, guys! I mean, when are you going to be in a double bed on a plane? Yeah. And everybody's like, you know what? We just really want our own. I was like, God. I would share it with you. Yeah, I know! That's what... I yeah. like foot. It, it was a double bed. It's fine. Like, can you imagine having a double bed? I mean, it's worth it. So, I mean, but it was still really fancy, but... Well, was that fancier than Steve Aoki's dad's house? That wasn't fancy. That wasn't fancy? No. What was that? You're going places. I'm yes. trying to go places. Uh, I like it. You're doing good. Um, well, Steve the, Aoki, we all know. Should we explain Steve With Aoki? the grace of Terry Gross. Explain who Steve Aoki is. Steve is my old friend. Uh-huh. He also is, I think, an, an heir to the Benihana fortune. What? You know this, right? No. Yeah, that's true. I mean, his DJ used to be Kid Millionaire. It used to be his DJ name. And now he's like this hugely famous DJ. Very sweet person. And just used to be hella punk rock. And he, um, anyway, we were staying in New York. And, you know, back then especially, like, you couldn't afford a hotel in New York. But also you couldn't have your equipment on the street because it yeah. might get stolen. This is probably like 12 years ago. Still, so still true. 2003. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still different, though. Different place, New York. Yeah. And then, um. Oh, I know it. No, oh, don't you? Don't you know? Yeah, exactly. This is for our lis- your listeners. For my sorry. listeners, New York. I did right now. My listeners are <laughs> um, But my listeners know. Oh, my listeners don't. They're about New York. No, so different. So different. Than the way we're coming up. I'll tell you, it is true. It's changed. Yeah, it looks dirty to me always. Yeah, that's true. It is different, I guess. But it's yeah, well, it's gentrified. Seems always dirty, but also plus people with more money than anyone in Portland has. Yeah, well, you have to. Either that or, like, you really do live in a closet. Yeah. So. Steve Aoki. Steve Aoki. Very lovely guy. Super rich. Rest in peace, his dad. Yeah. His dad passed away. Oh. Um, but I feel so lucky to have met him, and this is how. Steve was so kind. and was like, hey, you guys are in New York. Stay at my dad's house. And we're like, totally. So, something happens. This is pre-cell phone, too. So, it's the band Sleep Mute Night Mute, who are from here. Mm-hmm. The band Le Georges Leningrads, who are from... My namesake. From, yes, La Georges Leningrad. La Georges Leningrad from um, George's Leningrad. Montreal. Mm-hmm. Yes, George's. <laughs> that's not it, actually. That is not it. The George's Leningrad. Le Georges Leningrad. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not That's not it. Okay. But no, still, you can tell yourself anyway that <clears throat> they were from that band. I'm not even going to say the name. From Montreal. And we were all pretty wild, but really young, so it wasn't like sad wild it was fun wild yeah and i remember we were carrying a box of seven inches because we'd all played because we played a show together and so we had plans to we would be able to stay with stevie Oki's dad and mr aoki mm-hmm. and the, as far as we could get like we had the door number but i guess we didn't have it right and so as far as we got was to the foyer which is like you open the door so there's like 10 of you like the door there's four of us, oh, okay. actually. It's me, Dominique, Nate, and Nathan. Yeah. So we have a box of seven inches. 
And we're carrying that around all night. We finally get to this apartment. The only this we only get as far as the door, which is probably the size of a like maybe three phone booth. It's very small, but they're very fancy. So anyway, and nothing happens. We ring and ring and ring. I'm like, what are we gonna do? So we just hunker down and stay in the foyer thing all night. Like the door in between the doors. In the door in between the doors. So we just hunker down because it was a private door too. There yeah. was no doorman. That was the other crazy thing. And so, so you guys yeah. slept there. So we slept there, and the best part is around 7 in the morning when we finally just, we had just, like, resigned to sleeping there because no one was going to answer the door, and we didn't have the right number. We, um, Nate had gone to get us, Nate from Sleep Mute went to get his bagels, and they were literally the size of a plate. I'm not kidding. They were, like, this big. Like, it was comically big. Like, we laughed when he brought them back. And, but, but when I woke up, the way I woke up was, Stevie Oki's millionaire dad opened the door, gasped, and started laughing, like laughing so hard because it was just these ruckus, weird punks. Yeah. But the thing was, is that Nathan was using the seven inches for a pillow, Dominique was using his head for a pillow, and I don't know what I was using for a pillow, but Nate Preston was using the bagel for a pillow. <laughs> and that's your story. And that's, that's the first story. time I ever got laughed at by a millionaire, but not the last. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.